This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Dr. Dawn on Careers. Welcome to Dr. Dawn on Careers on SiriusXM channel 132. This is your host, Dr. Dawn Graham, and in my day job, I lead career coaching for the executive MBAs at the Wharton School. I'm also a licensed psychologist, former corporate recruiter, and author of the book, Switchers, How Smart Professionals Change Careers and See Success. We are excited to be bringing you all new content this month. So mark your calendars for noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, every Thursday, and tune into channel 132 for the latest career tips, job search advice, and market updates. And of course, a big shout out to Dan Simpkins, our engineer, and Dana Cash, our producer, for making this new content possible as we creatively navigate our temporary environment while we're out of the studio. And if you want to follow what's coming up on the show, or maybe you missed a couple, you can follow me on Twitter at Dr. Dawn Graham for all of the latest updates. So let's go ahead and dive in. And we are excited to welcome expert guest, Dr. Stephanie Creary to Dr. Dawn on Careers, an identity and diversity scholar and field researcher, assistant professor of management at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania, and affiliated faculty member of Wharton People Analytics. Stephanie's research examines how people manage conflict, resistance, ambivalence, and other experiences at work with a focus on examining diversity and inclusion practices. With a master's and PhD from Boston College and former roles at Harvard and Cornell, we're thrilled to have Dr. Stephanie Creary here with us today to share her wisdom. Thank you so much for joining us, Stephanie. We really appreciate you being here. Well, thank you so much for having me on your show. I appreciate the invitation. Well, we know, we know, let's just dive in. We know there are all types of biases in the hiring process and the workplace and, you know, age, gender, ableness, identity, the list is long, unfortunately, but today I I specifically want to talk about race on this show. This is not a new issue by far, but recent events have really brought the depth of the problem to light and we need to talk about it. We need to address it. And most importantly, we need to take action and there's so much that needs to be fixed. So I want to tackle some of the broader issues in organizations today and then focus on some of the specific action steps that both companies and individuals can take to move forward. So to kick off, as an expert who studies and teaches diversity and inclusion in a top business school, in your opinion, what needs the most attention right now in corporate America? Yeah, I think it's a fantastic question. I think we need to be having a conversation about what we mean by structures and systems um, and, and treat that as being related but different from people's attitudes and their awareness about bias. Because when we're thinking about the past interventions that companies have typically put in place to manage any type of bias, including racial bias, very quickly, especially over the last years, the mindset has gone toward unconscious bias trainings. And what many of these trainings are designed to do is to help people understand um, who they are and how they perceive other people around them. And while that's great, they haven't been so fruitful in helping to change the very systems that we lean on in order to recruit, retain, advance uh, people uh, of different backgrounds and organizations. So I would love to see a much more concentrated effort towards focusing on what we mean by systems and structures and what are the core systems and structures in organizations that create an equity and equity um, and also put to the side, but obviously include as part of this discussion, what it means to have a certain type of attitude or awareness that perhaps would be, need to be accounted for when we're thinking about these very systems and structures. So you bring up a really good point, and I even want to take a step back, Stephanie, because, you know, for better or for worse, a lot of people are, are getting their, their news and their information from social media, and a lot of terms 
are, are, you know, kind of all blurred together. I mean, we hear things like bias and prejudice and racist and microaggression and stereotypes and discrimination. And a lot of people kind of lump all of these together. And, you know, I think it's a helpful place to begin. I think we need to break down some of these and understand what's really happening because it's, it's pretty difficult to understand yourself and, and your own, as you're talking about it, biases, if, if all of these terms are mixed together. So can you, can you kind of give us an overview of, of, of what some of these terms mean and how we, we should be kind of looking at them differently? Yeah, so let me talk about two that have come up quite frequently. The first I'll, I'll address is systemic racism and what's meant by that. And the second I'll just talk about bias, like uh, racial bias, and we can talk about overt conscious bias versus unconscious bias. But to begin in, in thinking about systemic uh, racism, uh, you first have to understand what a system is. And this is sort of where we have these larger, larger conversations around structures. And what becomes really hard in having a conversation about systemic racism or and bias, I would say, is, is that you often do not, people often do not see these things happening and it becomes harder to wrap one's, uh, one's head around, one's mind around. And so uh, let me just define for you a couple of systems that uh, we are talking about as scholars and certainly as a community of individuals when we're, we're hoping to understand what systemic racism is. Um, and so obviously the, the one that we're having the, the most in-depth conversation about today would be the employment system. We often have, we also have educational systems and the educational systems in which we've learned um, also affect our opportunities. We have healthcare systems, right? We have criminal justice systems, uh, and, and the list goes on. We have economic systems, right? And so all of these have certain policies, procedures, norms, rules, and values attached to how one is um, included or excluded. So in the case of an employment, uh, the, the, the actual hiring process is part of a larger system, which many companies will talk about as talent management. But talent management isn't just hiring. It's also about once people are in, hired, how are they developed? What opportunities are they given to grow their skills? Um, then there's promotion potential, right? So what? how do these developmental opportunities that one might get, how does this support their ability to be promoted? And what does that process look like? Like, how do we decide who gets a promotion? Uh, and so on and so forth. And obviously within the larger employment system, there's also compensation systems. And so when we're talking about systemic racism, particularly as it relates to employment, we're saying that um, there are practices and policies that discriminate against people based on their race. So in the hiring process, if it's the case that we uh, systematically decide, for example, that only people who went to predominantly white institutions are valuable and those who went to historically black in colleges and universities, which we call HBCUs, are not as good, um, then we've already set ourselves up for engaging in a, in a racist, a systemically racist practice. So that's a quick um, overview of what systemic racism could look like in the employment slash hiring uh, talent management process. Um, if we think about bias, um, I actually started to hint about it a little, hit to it a little bit when I was talking about um, what we think about people who've attended predominantly white institutions. So the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania, the majority of students who attend are white. And so we refer to these as predominantly white institutions versus historically black colleges and universities. The dominant group that attends those institutions are, are often black and African-American. Um, and so uh, many people who have not uh, known somebody or never did their own um, research into historically black colleges and universities um, might be unaware of the value of an HBCU education. And what we know from research is that when people are unaware of something, they often tend to devalue it. And so we have hiring managers um, making decisions about who to interview, who to hire, often based on educational credentials. 
And so somebody who attended a historically black college or university that I might not know um, is, is good, right? I might not be able to judge that, uh, that, that uh, the quality of that education. They might make a decision not to include that person in, in the interview process or to hire them because they think somebody who attended a different college. And so that's where the bias comes up. Sometimes people are aware of these biases, right? Sometimes you might know that you think that HBCU education is inferior. And sometimes that's not um, something that's, that people are, are, are known to uh, think about. And so when we're thinking about bias, we're, we're trying to understand people's um, attitudes and uh, perceptions that might then lead to biased decision making. Yeah, I think that is spot on. And I think that's the, the part that people misunderstand. They may see something at the surface level, but they don't understand how ingrained this is into the system. And I want to talk about that today because I, I want to talk about um, how it's ingrained in promotions and networking. I know you've done work with uh, boards around this and how people are selected for, for boards, which obviously drive a lot of what happens in the companies. And so this is, this is a huge um, issue to tackle and we're not going to get to everything today, but I'm so glad we started with that definition because I think people under, need to understand how deep this goes. Hey, if you're just tuning in, you are listening to Dr. Dawn on Careers on SiriusXM channel 132. We are here with Dr. Stephanie Creary, who is the assistant professor of management at the Wharton School right here at the University of Pennsylvania, affiliated faculty member of Wharton People Analytics and an identity and diversity scholar and field researcher. And we are talking today about systemic racism, specifically in the employment system as it, as it pertains to getting hired, promoted, pay raises, um, you know, all throughout the system. And we're talking about how, how we all need to take action and what specifically you can do to take action. So let's, let's, um, let's kind of stay at the company level for just uh, another few minutes, Stephanie. And, you know, I think you wrote something in, the, in Wharton Magazine in one of the articles that you uh, published there that if you do nothing after saying something, your words will not matter. And I think that's so powerful because we see a lot of companies making grand gestures on social media and, um, you know, talking about initiatives they're doing, but, you know, a lot of these kind of fall flat. So what responsibility, real responsibility do our business leaders have to participate in solving this problem? And, and more specifically, what concrete actions can they take today? So you may be interested in knowing that there are a number of companies out there that have been engaging in uh, DEI or diversity, equity, and inclusion work for decades, right? I, I like to refer to these as the veterans. Uh, so they didn't just wake up in thinking about diversity, equity, inclusion yesterday. Now, now that said, there are plenty of companies where, um, which is a challenging opportunity for them are starting or initiating their work in, in with respect to diversity and inclusion by talking about race. And, and that's hard. Now, now that said, many of the companies that I'm that I'm thinking of that are veterans actually started decades ago uh, talking about diversity, equity, inclusion because they faced massive racial discrimination lawsuits. So I think that context is important to understand because then there comes becomes a question about where's the gap and what should we do? The, the interesting thing that you should also note is, is what my research, my ongoing research suggests is that um, many companies are make, have made much more progress, still with a long way to go, but have made much more progress with respect to gender diversity, implementing policies and practices to um, create flexible rank, work arrangements, paid family leave, things that help to support the careers of women and men uh, and, and their childcare uh, responsibilities. So these are things that many companies have done and, and it's starting to help uh, support the career development and the advancement of women in organizations. But they've not made the same progress, nor have they devoted the same um, attention or resources to conversations about race. And that's really where we are right now, is, is companies have to understand why that is. And so the writings that I've been doing recently and what I've been publishing and what I've been doing in my research as I've talked to companies uh, uh, over the last uh, month or so has been to understand what has gotten in the way. And the reality for many of these companies 
is that um, race is an uncomfortable topic to talk about. And, and that's problematic, right? It's problematic that progress would be thwarted because we're uncomfortable in talking about race. Um, and so I think there's a lot of work that companies need to do uh, around getting comfortable with being uncomfortable and then setting out to create action plans. Um, some of these policies and practices that they already have in place can be retooled, but they're also gonna have to create new policies and practices to support issues of racial inequity. Yeah, I, one, of the, one of the companies I um, started following on Instagram that I really like, it's called Pull Up or Shut Up. And it basically calls out companies that have these explicit EEO statements on their websites or, or job ads and asks them to provide actual stats on the number of, of black leaders or people of color in leadership roles and ask them, how much money are you investing in these initiatives for training and resources and speakers or internal initiatives? And you know, we know the research shows companies with higher rates of diversity of, of race and gender have greater sales, greater profits. So, I mean, the, the, the data is there and um, I love that this company is kind of calling uh, people out to say, okay, show us what you're actually doing versus just putting out these, these social media campaigns or things. So it's great to hear from you, Stephanie, that there are companies who are actively taking a role. And to tag on what you said, because I think you're right. I think, um, you know, something else that, that I read in, in one of your articles was that many managers really do feel ill-equipped to offer advice on what to do when it comes to diversity and inclusion in their organizations. And as a result, you know, these, these never really make it past the C-suite where change really happens. So one thing I've noticed myself is that leaders are reluctant to bring up this topic for fear of saying or some, doing something wrong, but then you've got the employees who are afraid to bring up what they're experiencing for fear of how they'll be viewed or retaliated against. So we need to find this better balance. And, and you created a, um, you know, kind of a, a, a way to dialogue this. You call it race and it has four different steps, which I, which I loved to see in that article. So I'm wondering if you could share that with us today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so I initially created the, the race framework as I, as I referred to it um, as a way to help people who were trying to facilitate conversations about race uh, do so more effectively. Um, and so initially my, my target audience were uh, educators. And so I've since span, expanded that to talk about middle managers. And, and, I, and I decided to focus on middle managers because if you talk to any diversity, equity, inclusion expert, you will learn that um, you know, it is hard, as, as you've mentioned, to get um, individuals who are in that position to understand what they're trying to do, what we're trying to accomplish, and, and what their role is in that process. And so what I have learned, um, because I am also, in addition to being a scholar, I'm also an educator, is you need to adopt a teaching and a learning mindset, right? And so you think about students come to the Wharton School for, we have lots of different programs. We have undergrad, we have MBA programs, we have educative edu education programs. And we teach people how to do things, right? We, what we put them through, we give them co academic content, evidence-based um, work, and then we engage them in exercises that are designed to develop their capacities to do something better. And, and the sad and unfortunate thing is that this hasn't always been done for DEI work. And so the race framework for me is, is fundamentally about building the capacity of middle managers to engage as a behavioral strategy more effectively in, in, in conversations about uh, race. And so the R stands for reduce anxiety by talking about race anyway. So yes, people are uncomfortable. Yes, it has been taboo. Yes, people have suggested that this is a US only issue as a defense against talking about race. But if you turn on the news, you will see that people in every country around the world are talking about race right now. And they're not talking about race in the US, they're talking about race in their own companies. And so if we want people to feel more comfortable in talking about race, we need to uh, begin to do things like implement norms around having conversations about race. Um, one of the norms that often comes up in the conversations that I have with managers and, um, and, and students is about confidentiality. Um, and there's also norms around making sure you're addressing the issue and not attacking the person. The A is about accepting that anything related to race um, is going to be visible or invisible. And what I mean by that is understanding that everybody has a different experience around race. I'm a black African-American woman. And so people notice my race. Um, 
um, everywhere I go, right? And it is, and, and I have students who say, you're the first black professor or black, black teacher I've ever had. So for me, race is a constant. Um, it's also a very positive experience most of the time. And sometimes it's a bit of a challenging one, but it also means that for someone like me, um, I am probably engaging in conversations about race. Obviously I have a profession that entitles me to do that, but uh, I'm probably engaging in race conversations more, uh, more um, often than people who are not black, right? And so what becomes really important is accepting that we're in different places, but also understanding that people who are, who are not me, you know, who are not black, also need to learn that this is, this is their job as well. Uh, the C is calling on internal and external allies for help. And so, as I've mentioned, many companies have punted for so long in talking about race that they don't have anybody in their company who really has the expertise to help facilitate the work that they're all claiming that they want to do. So they have to reach outside to consultants, to academics, to help shore up their capacity to support their employees and their workforce. Now, there are also people internally, so many companies are, are leaning on their employees um, who have other jobs to do this work. Um, you know, I always urge them, don't burn out your, your black, your minority and your female employees, um, reward them for doing it. But there's certainly something to be said about making sure that you're tapping into your different resources internally and externally. And then finally, the E is, is sort of a testament to where we started. I created this race framework because I wanted people to feel um, like they could engage in conversations about race, that they had the tools. And so the E is expect that you'll need to provide frameworks like race. I also have a framework called LEAP that um, I talk about for uh, teaching others about allyship behavior. That's important. So, so those are sort of my starting points. Uh, I'm finding people are, are, are feeling that this is useful, which is, was sort of the point to begin with. Yeah, I love that. So just, I think it's so important. So just really quickly to sum it up again, race, reduce anxiety by talking about race anyway. A, accept that anything related to race is going to be either visible or invisible. C, call on internal and external allies for help. And E, expect that you will need to provide some answers, tools, and frameworks. I love that. I think that is a, a great place for leaders to start. And I, I, I know you mentioned LEAP, Stephanie, as well. And I definitely want to talk about that too, because I know there are a lot of people out there who want to be allies and are asking the question, how can I do more? How can I, how can I do something that actually has impact? So I, I certainly want to talk about that. And really quickly, if you're just tuning in, you are listening to Dr. Dawn on Careers. I'm your host, Dr. Dawn Graham. And we are here with Dr. Stephanie Creary, who is an identity and diversity scholar and field researcher, assistant professor of management right here at the Wharton School and affiliated member of Wharton People Analytics. And we are talking about systemic racism in the employment area. And um, in just a few minutes, we're going to get a break. And, we're, and after break, I want to talk a little bit about kind of the hiring processes specifically, because we talk about that a lot on Dr. Dawn on careers. But before we, we move into that, um, Stephanie, you know, looking at, again, this, this um, uh, larger organization, how can individuals who feel bullied or discriminated against start a dialogue when there is so little support in their organization? I mean, we know just there's just four black CEOs who run Fortune 500 companies in America and a lot of culture is driven from top down. Um, so how can somebody who is in this situation right now start a dialogue that will, will help them to you know, um, start a ripple effect in their organization? Well, the great news is, is that people are, the, the opportunity is created. So we're in a moment where it's much easier than I would say uh, it was back in April, right? Um, and so I think now it's about how do you uh, create a space where people can actually learn? Because I would say, you know, you can say, let's have a conversation on Zoom, all 20 of us will join and let's just talk about race. But what you're quickly going to get into is, is um, 
difficult territory if there aren't some boundaries around the conversation. Um, so I've been contacted by a number of people who are, actually most of the people who've contacted me are not the chief diversity leader in their company. It's been work teams um, who, and oftentimes they're people who have some managerial responsibility, but they're not the top, top of the organization. And they've said, in my work team, we want to begin having a conversation about race. Can you facilitate this for us, right? And so that's what many people are doing, is they are reaching out to whoever has written an article, who has ever cited in uh, the local news outlet, um, and saying, will you come do this work? Now, the, the reality is, is this work is not unpaid, right? So that person would then have to probably secure a proposal from the person they're inviting to do this work and then shepherd it up. But I would say um, so many companies are willing in ways that they weren't previously to have this conversation that I don't think it is challenging um, in many companies to, to begin to propose uh, an expert uh, coming on Zoom or coming on any of these virtual platforms to engage with a small or a large group in a structured dialogue. And, and it could be a strategic action um, setting session around race in the workplace. So, so let's, um, and let's flip that question because um, that is so good to hear first off, but let's flip that question to what you talked about a few minutes ago is, is how to be a good ally. I'd love for you to introduce your LEAP framework that uh, was in the Harvard Business Review article that you wrote and give people a structure framework again to be an ally in, in what we're doing right now. Okay, great. So the LEAP framework I originally developed uh, to talk broadly about bridging across differences um, that can exist based on gender, based on race, based on manager versus direct reports. And so the original framework is, is really about that. And so what I did, obviously, as people are looking for um, solutions, is I tailored that to suit the current context. And so the article is, is called, it published in Harvard Business Review last week, is how to be a better ally to your black colleagues. And so L-E-A-P, LEAP, is the, is the acronym. L is listen and learn from your black colleagues' experiences. So uh, that um, idea is that we won't know what to do until we actually fully understand what the problem is. Um, and so being able to engage in opportunities to listen and learn from your black colleagues' experiences is really important. And so I suggest that participating in any of these um, these, uh, these sessions, whether it's a 20 person session or whether it's a big company town hall focused on race in the workplace is a good place right now to begin to learn. Um, also companies often have black um, employee resource groups and these meetings are often open to people of any race. And so you might hear um, about black employees experiences in, in the context of those meetings. The E is engaging with black colleagues in racially diverse and more casual settings. And to my point about ERGs, these often tend to be more racially diverse for people than their normal workplace experience. Um, and so the reason why this is important is because uh, research often suggests that black employees are less likely to share their experiences in situations where they feel like they're going to be evaluated, like evaluated based on their performance. And so um, casual settings and especially settings around other people of color tend to uh, lower the perceived risk or the threat. Uh, the A is asking Black employees about their work and their goals. So, so much of the research, especially research on microaggressions, has suggested that Black employees are often asked about things that's not about their work. They're asked about their racial backgrounds, they're asked about their personal lives, they're asked about their physical appearance. Um, and so that becomes a problem when the, the challenge that many Black employees are having, aside from having to deal with microaggressions, is that they need support for their work. So A is ask Black employees about their work and their goals because you you might know, understand the concerns that they have and that they might not be getting support from their direct manager. And then finally, the P is providing your black, black colleagues with opportunities, suggestions, encouragement, and support. Um, we know from a lot of research that black employees often lack the same opportunities as their peers from other racial backgrounds. Um, and so their experiences, the good and the bad, need to be amplified. They need to be recommended for highly visible opportunities. They need feedback. They need to be introduced. They need to be rewarded for doing their side diversity, equity, and inclusion work alongside their real jobs. And so this article um, definitely suggests a whole host of strategies. So hopefully that will entice more people to go and read it. 
Yeah, so that's in the Harvard Business Review. And can you say the name one more time, Stephanie? The title? Yeah, it's called How to Be a Better Ally to Your Black Colleagues. And I, I saw your extended talk that you did at the University of Mich Michigan Ross a School of Business, um, Creative More Inclusive Workplaces in the Era of Discord. And what I loved about that is you actually had an exercise that you facilitated, yeah. which was super helpful. So if you're looking for something that could be helpful, definitely check that out. It is on YouTube, Creating More Inclusive Workplaces in an Era of Discord, Dr. Stephanie Creary. Hey, we have to go to a break right now, Dr. Don, on careers, but do stay tuned because we will be back with um, more conversation with Dr. Stephanie Creary. And we'll be talking specifically about the hiring process and how racism prevails throughout that in terms of networking, in terms of hiring promotions, and um, even AI. You may be very surprised to hear how it's in that. So, hey, you're just tuning in. You're listening to SiriusXM channel 132. This is Dr. Dawn on careers, and we will be right back. Andy Cohen Live is fun. Are you ready? Are you ready for this? Do you like it? Do you like it like this? A party. I'm really excited. I'm so happy you are. Revelatory. What? I've never heard of that. Uncensored. I'm not being a downer. I'm being funny. Insane. Wow, man. What a trip it was. Jaw dropping. What's going on? <laughs> Join me on Andy Cohen Live. You never know what you're going to hear. Radio Andy. Sirius XM 102. Or listen anytime on the Sirius XM app. Volume Sirius XM 106 is your 24-7 talk channel about music. Featuring the most respected and knowledgeable people in the music business, Bill Flanagan. Robert Plant. There's got to be enough variety amongst the people that I play with so that I'm amazed sometimes. John Resnick. Rob Thomas. There's certain moments like to me to step outside of myself and be a part of a pop world. And Steve Jordan. John Mayer. I had to learn how to be loved, and the crowd gave that to us. This is Volume Sirius XM 106, your liner notes to the world of music. You're listening to Dr. Dawn on Careers. On Business Radio. Welcome back to Dr. Dawn on Careers on SiriusXM channel 132. Hey, we are very excited to be bringing you all new content in the month of July. So stay tuned every Thursday, noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific to Dr. Dawn on Careers to get the latest tips and advice. And if you want to see what's coming up, you can follow me on Twitter at Dr. Dawn Graham. And we are excited today to be speaking with expert guest, Dr. Stephanie Creary, who is an identity and diversity scholar and field researcher, assistant professor of management at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania and affiliated faculty member of Wharton People Analytics. Stephanie's research examines how people manage conflict, resistance, ambivalence, and other experiences at work with a focus on examining diversity and inclusion practices. We have been talking a lot in the first half of the show about organizations and what steps they can be taking. And now we're going to bring it down to more of an individual level and talk about the hiring process. Um, so Stephanie, once again, thank you for, for taking the time to join us here today. I wanted to talk about something um, that we talk about a lot on this show called you know networking, which we, we talk about a lot as it relates to the job search and hiring. But I know networking has a dark side. And the dark side of networking is that, um, and, and Jeff Weiner, actually uh, former CEO of LinkedIn called this out at his keynote at Talent Connect last year that, um, that there's this existence of a network gap, the tendency for those who come from affluent neighborhoods and attend elite schools and work at top employers to enjoy more opportunities than those who have not. And he further admitted that LinkedIn's algorithms may have unintentionally supported this trend and showed that individuals who graduated from top-ranked colleges um, you know, got more opportunities where you know, referral programs work. But again, this, this systemic bias that flowed through the system was a problem. So it's, it's an interesting um, topic to tackle because we talk about networking so much as it relates to the job search and we don't often talk about this side of it. So um, from your research and studies, uh, what are you seeing here? I know you've worked with boards and other, other places who tend to use networking as a way to recruit. 
Yeah, so I think if we just think about networking for a second as relationships, which is how I like to think about the ways in which we engage, uh, we tend to form relationships with people who make us feel comfortable and support us and our needs. Um, and we tend to feel that the people who are doing that are those who get us. And we tend to feel like people who get us are people who are most like us. So that's already telling you um, at a very um, basic level, uh, people are forming and, and have more of a capacity and more of a desire to form relationships with people who are like them, who've had shared experiences. And so in the case of what you've been sharing, who have attended their same elite schools, right? And so we have these very closed networks developing in professional networks circuits such that if you don't belong to one of those, it becomes hard to access. Um, and so the reality of it is, is as we're talking about diversity and inclusion more broadly, a lot of the practices that companies are putting in place is designed to break those patterns, whether by creating networking events where uh, they're focused on recruiting people from different backgrounds and they're um, purposely including uh, people, other people in these um, who might not normally interact or engage with let's say, for example, racially um, underrepresented minorities, they're putting them all in the same room or the same virtual space to have conversations so that they can get to know each other better. That's one thing that's being done. And I think some of the other work, particularly as companies are trying to teach uh, uh, individuals, hiring managers, and certainly team members to be more inclusive in the job process is they're trying to help them understand how do you begin to connect with somebody who, who is from a different background? And, and to that end, how do you evaluate somebody's candidacy for a position in your organization if you know nothing about the school that they attended or the activities that they engaged in? And so that's the work that's having to be done because as you suggested and as my research and others suggest is that we are making these very narrow decisions about who belongs and who should be hired based on uh, our own similarity and, and comfort zone. Yeah, and I, um, I'm, I'm thrilled to see that there are some larger companies making some changes to this. Obviously, uh, you know, once Jeff Weiner discovered this, he's basically taken on a role now where he's, he's committed to reducing this network bias and LinkedIn has come out with a number of ways to start doing that. We see Amazon broadening the list of schools where they recruit from. We see many large tech companies like Google and Apple not requiring a degree any longer. Um, you know, the body shop is, is trying something called open hiring to reduce bias. So I think, I think we are seeing some, some great steps forward and we need to see these on a, on a much larger scale. One thing that that um, I read an article about, and I'm, I would love to get your thoughts on this, is this idea of, of culture fit. So according to the Society for Human Resources Management, Stephanie, hiring an employee that does not fit with the company culture can be really costly, and the individual uh, probably will not stay at that company very long. Uh, but there's been, uh, on the other side, there's been articles that talk about the fact that culture fit is just a way to mask bias and that, you know, there's this unwritten set of rules that maintain the status quo, which means underrepresented groups are being discriminated against in hiring. So there's kind of both sides of the coin out there. And I'm curious how you see this fitting into um, the, the whole topic of systemic racism and bias. Yeah, so I spent a lot of time on this con this concept, uh, both in my teaching at Wharton with my students. We have a whole day uh, just talking about um, bias, um, and then another day talking about systems. And in both talks, we address this notion of what does it mean to hire for cultural fit, where are the opportunities, um, and where are the challenges. Because I think I always like to think of things, and I, and I teach other people to think of things in terms of the upsides and the downsides. Everything has pros and cons, right? And so culture is important because it helps us uh, uh, think about um, what are the common sets of norms, practices, and values that we want to observe that we believe are, are important to us uh, being successful collectively and individually? And so culture in and of itself isn't bad. Values in and of itself are not bad. The problem with culture fit is people are often, and hiring managers are often left to their own understanding of what's valuable 
in assessing culture fit. So it's not as if all hiring managers have a list of saying, we're looking for people who are trustworthy. We're looking for people who are creative. We're looking for people who believe in social responsibility. Like it's not always that clearly defined and that we're we're going to assess people's uh, suitability for working here based on these cultural dimensions. That's not what's happening in practice. What's happening in practice is people are using their gut instinct to determine whether or not somebody would be quote unquote right or fit the organization. And often these gut instincts are made about people's self-presentation. So how do they dress? How do they talk? What do they talk about? Do they engage in the same leisure activities as we do? Who do they know? How comfortable do they make make me feel? A word that I've heard a lot is polish. How polished do they come across? And all of that is exceptionally biased. And all the research would say is that when you're sampling on those latter dimensions that I just mentioned, you're often recruiting for affluent white male candidates. And and that's where it becomes problematic for women and underrepresented minorities is when we try to assess fit based on these um, criteria that have no consequence, positive or otherwise, to the work that we do in this organization. Mm-hmm. And I think I think um, a lot of people or companies have turned to AI powered systems to try and mitigate bias, which I think in some ways they can be helpful. But um, there's there's a number of ways that the data can actually be biased. So you know we've seen this with Amazon's efforts to build resume screening tool which basically trained the model to, to um, basically hire men and penalize women applicants. We've seen you know, the variables that people use to program these systems. For example, zip codes can be used as a proxy for race as one example. And there's a lot of blind spots in these. And then you know, humans can definitely misuse models and make predictions based on data or tell stories based on data that really suit their own needs. So, so while I think that we can certainly use technology to help solve this problem. I don't think relying on it as the only way to solve this problem is is something that we need to do. And one of the things I read um, that that companies are doing is implementing something called bias interrupters. So, you know, they're having more people on the hiring panel, for example, people with different backgrounds. They're rewriting job descriptions, as you pointed out, Stephanie, to make sure the language isn't biased. They are recruiting applicants from different places versus just going to the top universities. So I think these are some of the great things that we're seeing from companies, and I hope that this continues. Um, as we as we kind of wrap up here on this topic, and gosh, there's so much we could talk about um, if we had more time, and hopefully you'll come back to the show at some point, but what, what can listeners actively engage in? How can they make positive changes in their organizations, and, and what resources do you recommend for individuals who really want to become allies for change, Stephanie? So I would say personal responsibility is key here. The organizations are really trying, but as anybody knows anything about organizations, is that when you need a whole bunch of people to agree on what needs to be done, it's going to take a long time. So it means until we have, um, you know, the most concrete, specific uh, direction, we each need to to start reading. Um, If you go to my website, stephaniecreary.com, there's a tab. It's called How to Resources. I've tried to post either things that I've written myself or things that I've contributed to that I think are uh, answers to some of the top questions that people are asking these days. Um, so many articles, and, and I just cited the ones where, um, or I've included on the web, my website, the things that I've been cited in, but I know so many outlets, you name it, have um, taken the opportunity of this moment in time to really shore up their capacity to to give not only um, insights to companies, but also to individuals as well. So it's, it's as easy as opening up your internet browser and scrolling on to any number. You could go to Harvard Business Review, you could go to the Wall Street Journal, you could go to New York Times, you could go to LinkedIn. And there are a number of things that you can read and engage with that are evidence-based that can help you feel more effective. Thank you so much. Dr. Stephanie Creary um, has shared so much of her time today, helping us all learn and take a positive step forward toward true equality for all. And um, where can people learn more about you? I know you mentioned your website, if you want to mention that again, and if you're on Twitter or LinkedIn so that people can continue to follow your work. 
Yeah, so if you go to stephaniecreary.com, um, I actually have my, my Twitter feed embedded there. And then in the, in the bottom margin, you'll see the icons for LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram, uh, where you can find me. I, I, I typically post much more on, on LinkedIn and Twitter, but you can certainly see stuff that I'm either I'm contributing to or stuff that I'm trying to share to help everybody feel uh, like this is something that they can engage in as well. Thank you so much, Stephanie. We've really enjoyed having you here today. We appreciate your time and all of your all the work you're doing in this area. It's so incredibly important. And to wrap up in the last few minutes of the show, Dr. Stephanie Creary had mentioned that many companies are taking positive actions to address diversity, equity, and inclusion in their organizations. So I want to share those as examples of what can be done to move things forward. And to help with that, we welcome Ruth Umo, a reporter covering the various aspects of diversity and inclusion in business and society at large. Previously in media roles with CNBC, New York Daily News, and Rolling Stone, Ruth joins us to share some of the significant things companies are doing to address the systemic racism and inequality at their organizations. So Ruth, I want to welcome you to Dr. Dawning Careers. We appreciate you being here to join us, and I know you do a lot of work in this area. I've read your articles. You're, um, you're, you're publishing a lot. So what are some positive actions that you're seeing organizations take in the market? Absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me, Dodd. Uh, as you noted, DNI has received renewed interest amid a pandemic that disproportionately affects brown and black people, amid sweeping national and even global unrest. Um, and companies are really stepping forward and using their financial fortitude and political sway uh, to affect change. Just in the last few months, we've seen tech companies in particular like Google pledging multi-million dollars to fight against racial inequity. Google in particular pledged $175 million to racial equity, and a number of other organizations have done the same. Apple committed $100 million. Uh, Bank of America pledged $1 billion over a four-year time span. Um, but with what makes Google unique in particular, I think, is that the company is also making changes internally. Um, it committed to uh, uh, adding more Black employees to senior leadership, um, an, an area where there are very, very few people of color. Um, and it's also committed to improving the general leadership um, of, of people of color and people from underrepresented groups. I believe that Google stated it will increase the number of people of color in its leadership teams by 30 uh, by 30% by 2025. So that's just within the next five years. Um, we're also seeing uh, policies that have been mixed within, within Google. Um, the company recently put an end to asking employees to monitor for unauthorized visitors because that type of policy can be susceptible to bias. Um, and last thing I do want to note is that companies are really now putting their money where their mouth is, and they can no longer get away with providing lip service as they have for a number of years. Uh, Netflix in particular, the streaming giant, is now allocating 2% of its cash holdings to financial institutions for Black communities and that service Black communities. And it allows those communities to lend more money to these underprivileged and underserved uh, demographics. And so it's not just a one-time thing that we're seeing anymore. This, these aren't just philanthropic efforts. They are committed investments into underserved and underrepresented populations. And with Netflix in particular, this new policy is now an ingrained part of Netflix's core business model and its core business strategy. Yeah, and I think that's so important, Ruth, that, you know, the money, that's, that's what we're seeing a lot is saying, hey, if this is really important, you're going to put money and resources into it. But then we're also in the middle of a pandemic, which mm -hmm. caused a lot of um, companies to have financial challenges. So I'm just curious, because I, I know um, you've looked at this too, how the pandemic has impacted um, the movement forward for some companies. Yeah, so I think that now more so than ever, um, we have absolutely nothing to do. We're socially distanced, we're quarantined. We really don't have much left to do but watch the news to keep, uh, stay on top of, of changes um, and, and scroll on social media. And so I think that consumers in particular, but also employees are holding their uh, 
company leaders accountable. They're calling them out on social media. They're, they're, they're you know, emailing and messaging their CEOs or their chief human resource officer, and they want their demands to be met, and company leaders are listening. Um, there, there's obviously, as I said before, been this, been this renewed interest in DNI because of this pandemic. But in the past, DNI historically has uh, bled in through the human resources department, and you're no longer necessarily seeing that. Uh, firstly, there's been a surge in the number of uh, chief diversity officers, I believe a 55% uptick just since June alone um, in the number of vacant uh, chief diversity officer positions. Um, we're also seeing companies now shift in that position and, and having chief diversity officers report directly to the CEO or the chief operating officer. Uh, Facebook is a recent example of that. Uh, Cheryl Sandberg just announced that the company's global chief diversity officer will now be reporting directly to her. And that's critical because you need chief diversity officers and diversity heads to have a seat at that table to really weigh in on the company's diversity recruitment and hiring efforts, but also um, across the organization within the financial sector, um, you need the chief diversity officer sitting there and saying, hey, we need to look at how we're investing money. Where are our funds going? Are we backing uh, diverse suppliers? Are we hiring and, and putting money towards training and underrepresented communities and schools for those in the tech industry who desperately need that technological infrastructure and computers and things of that nature. Um, you need chief diversity officers in marketing who will say, hey, does this ad make sense? Is it culturally appropriate? Does it sound as though we're aware? Um, and so you see that companies are just now coming into this realization. And it's one that has really been propelled and pushed forward uh, by this global movement. Yeah, and that's so important, Ruth, that it comes from the top down, that, that the, the people who are at the decision-making table and deciding where the dollars go, the resources go, the strategy plays out are involved in this. So that is great to hear. Um, as, we, as we wrap up, I'm curious uh, if, if you're in an organization where either they're, they're, they're doing some of these things, but they're not maybe yet making it to your team or you're in an organization that, that hasn't done these things, what can individuals man what can individual managers do to maybe foster more open and include openness and inclusion on their teams in their departments kind of at the you know mid manager level Absolutely. So I'm glad you asked this question because when we think of DNI, we often think of it as something that only those at the C-suite or board level can push forward. And that's not true at all. Um, for those who are at the mid-management position, I think it starts with first listening to your employees and asking yourself, okay, how what what you know what diversity efforts can I incorporate into my particular team? What are my direct reports thinking? How are they feeling? Check in on them, ask them what resources they find them. Uh, beneficial. I know, for instance, that a number of companies have really focused on, you know, offering mental health resources amid this pandemic. And so it really just first starts with listening and then creating a detailed plan that you can first start off small with your team, but eventually there's, there, there's a chance that you could scale up and make it something that's organization-wide. But it does start with listening and it has to come with specific metrics. Yeah, I love that you said that. We talked about that that a little bit earlier on the show is that you have to have those conversations. They're uncomfortable. People are, you know, are, are have anxiety around them, but you have to have those conversations because that is the, the start to opening the door to making positive changes. So thank you so much, Ruth, for the work that you do, for the, the articles that you write. Where can people learn more about you and um, the articles you're publishing? Absolutely. You can follow me on Twitter at Ruth Umo News. You can also find me if you just Google Forbes, Ruth Umo. My articles will pop up quickly. That's fantastic. And it's Ruth U-M-O-H for those who are going to go ahead and Google that. And I very much encourage you to do that right now. And that is a wrap for Dr. Dawn on careers. But join us next Thursday at noon Eastern time for another new episode right here on SiriusXM channel 132. from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.